is healthcare improvement needs will, ideas, and execution, as we often say at IHI. It also increasingly needs evaluation, especially if you want to understand which ideas or interventions are the precise ones responsible for any changes, or which hypotheses, hypotheses I should say, hold up, or whether it's possible to gain similar results across settings or across a system or a community, how about a state or an entire country. Have we given as much attention to the how and why an improvement initiative seems to be working as we have to the what? Probably not. But with a growing global improvement movement seeking sustainable reforms without having to reinvent the wheel every time or without putting on the wrong wheels, we need some sharp minds on the evaluation of the work itself, from the study design through the improvement itself, right through to the conclusions and the next project. Four people looking at this issue with growing sophistication are with me at the International Forum on Quality and Safety in Paris. We're coming to you live from the Palais de Congrès, I get my accent grave, right, in Paris, on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show, as we like to say, from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We only rarely come from Paris, but maybe we can work on that. We're offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And if you're attending WIHI for the first time, we're doing the show a bit earlier today so we can share a special edition from Paris where it's currently a little after 5 p.m. Our four guests have just come from their own panel at the International Forum on our topic today, What Can We Learn from the Evaluation of Improvement Initiatives? In fact, they've been talking about this issue quite a bit at this forum. I dare say it's been one of the themes. It featured heavily in the Scientific Symposium on Tuesday. So you're in for a real treat. I'll introduce them in just a moment, but first, here's John Gothier. Happy birthday, John. He's in our WIHI studio in Cambridge, Mass., and um, he's going to remind you how to be an engaged WIHI participant. Go ahead, John. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, of course, we have the chat window to your right. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat window. And we keep the chat closed during the beginning of the conversation, but we'll open it up after about 20 minutes or so for everyone to share their questions and comments. Once the chat is open, make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants. We'll be in the studio monitoring the chat area and bringing the question to imagine our guests. Now again, if you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio through your speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. Now this format works the best if you're on a high-speed connection. If you're on a slower connection, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send me a check via WebEx, and if the problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and I'll flash the slide with that number shortly. We're always looking to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the, after the program to fill out a really quick survey. And if you're a friend of the program, you know that we've been running a little contest for folks who fill out the survey. Thanks to everyone who's filled out the survey the past couple weeks, Lori Miller of St. Vincent's out in Indiana was our lucky window from the last program, and we hope Lori's listening today. Back to you, Madge. <laughs> okay. And she won, what, an Amazon gift card? An Amazon gift card, yes. 
Right. So she's, I think, our third winner. So uh, thank you all for your survey participation as well as your participation as well. So again, um, thanks, John. Again, it's Madge Kaplan. I'm here in Paris at the International Forum. And I want to uh, say at the outset uh, a real sincere thanks to the fine staff at the British Medical Journal Group here in Paris. They really helped a lot with the logistics. Also, a big thank you to Yael Gill from IHI. I uh, helped, uh, held my hand uh, and got us uh, to this spot. And uh, now let me introduce our guest. So we've got Dr. Donald Goldman here looking kind of tan. I understand you had a little vacation before the Paris Forum. All right, and it's Don's uh, birthday, and uh, too, so a happy birthday to Don Goldman. Uh, Don is an expert in clinical infectious diseases and epidemiology. He's a senior vice president at IHI. He's responsible for fellowship training, faculty relations, IHI's innovation research and evaluation program, several translational research and results-oriented projects. He's also the principal IHI liaison to a number of strategic allies. So welcome, Don. Hello. Dale Webb is here. Uh, just a little heads up that Dale will have to be on his way at the half hour, but we're thrilled we got some of his time today. Dale has worked in healthcare and evaluation for 20 years as Director for Evaluation and Strategy at the Health Foundation in the UK. He has commissioned a large number of independent evaluations of the Health Foundation's work. Dale is also responsible for a program of work in Malawi, which has been working to improve maternal and newborn health since 2006. So welcome. Thank you. All right, Mary Dixon Woods, next to Don here, is Professor of Medical Sociology at the Department of Health Sciences School of Medicine. Now I'm going to make sure I do this right. University of Leicester, UK, kind of like Worcester, Leicester, where she leads the Social Science Applied to Healthcare Improvement Research Group. You'd be amazed how many people, you see Worcester for the first time, you say Worcester, so I learned the hard way. All right, enough of me. Her research focuses on application of social science method and theory to important problems in healthcare. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. All right, and Gareth Perry is here. He's a senior scientist at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a clinical assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Currently, Gareth is leading the development of an evaluation system within the IHI, and he's providing scientific leadership for a number of IHI programs. So we're going to get started. A reminder that with Vicki Minden's help back in Cambridge, we keep track of a lot of the resources, names of things, references that people uh, mention on the program. So don't uh, get worried about that. We have a, a page and a resource uh, document that goes live with the archived version of the show by tomorrow morning, so we'll be keeping track. So I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Don Goldman. Um, we're in an international forum, and we're not just talking about improvement and what's been achieved since perhaps the last time or over the years, but we're also talking a lot about whether we even understand what we're doing uh, when we're doing the improvement such that we can uh, learn and do things better uh, the next time around, no less spread the gains. So I'm wondering, is this issue um, getting tremendous attention because we're concerned about whether progress is made or we're concerned that we don't understand even when progress is made, why it's being made, or both perhaps? Well, or a third thing. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, when you teed this up uh, earlier, Madge, uh, you uh, gave a very fair and uh, balanced <laughs> perspective, but I'm going to be, as usual, a little edgier and say that we're at a critical moment in improvement work uh, where people appropriately, including uh, many uh, people at this forum, 
are asking us about the credibility of our work. Uh, they notice that sometimes we make claims which are uh, hard to substantiate or demonstrate the, that, as you say, we know what we did. Other times uh, our results might be disappointing, and in that instance, we can't say why they're disappointing. Uh, so uh, this is a time where we're going to be tested, uh, where uh, people who are interested in our work, who've even been enthusiastic about our work, are going to say, uh, how do you know? Do you know? Uh, is what you demonstrated in uh, such and such a ward of such, such and such a hospital, uh, can, can that be spread? Uh, are we confident that it will work elsewhere? Do we know why or where it might work? So uh, I think that getting to the bottom of that and beginning to evaluate our work uh, is extremely important. And not just the kind of evaluation where somebody from the outside comes in and says, well, it worked or no, it didn't work, but uh, where we're really uh, evaluating our own uh, work in real time and adapting to what we're finding on the ground. It's really important that we start to do that be able to describe it, and I think the panelists today, uh, who I hope will now give us uh, some insight, uh, are asking those really tough questions. We don't ask them of ourselves, others will ask them of us, and we better be ready to uh, give those answers. Thanks, Don, uh, Dr. Don Goldman, and a lot of nodding heads here. All right, Gareth, let me turn to you. Um, the foursome here were just literally one stairway down giving a panel on this topic, and I saw uh, if John's able to, he might to be able to share uh, some of Gareth's slides, at least a couple of the ones that you shared. Um, Gareth, you've been looking at the importance of having clear theories of change at the outset of any improvement initiative. Um, but so I want to ask you first about why that's so important to have a clear theory of change. It may sound obvious, but uh, maybe you can talk about that for a minute or two. And then what are we learning? Um, in some ways, we're getting into this topic more deeply because we are finding out there are some real difficulties around spreading change. Thanks, Gareth. Yeah, I think there's, there's really two pieces to this. Um, you know, I, I think... In, in terms of what we're trying to do at IHI, at least, we're, we're trying to um, back off and, and, and talk not so much about sort of fixed term, uh, fixed protocol interventions to say, you know, if you just do this particular thing in this particular way, everything will work out fine. Um, it's to start thinking a little bit more about what lies behind um, particular interventions. Um, what, it, what, it, what are the kind of concepts which lie behind these, these particular things? So, you know, we, we can think about, um, we can also think about rapid response teams, actually. And, and, and rather than saying, okay, so this is what you need for a rapid response team, you need two doctors, um, two nurses to turn up by a bedside when a particular thing happens. Start thinking a little bit more about what is it that we're really trying to do here? Um, what is it that we're really trying to achieve? And it might be, for example, to, to start thinking about more optimal ways to get care um, to people when they're, when they're um, about to deteriorate, not let's just follow this fixed protocol and, and, and assume everything will, will work. Let's think about what the theory is. Let's think about what the concepts are which lie behind that particular in intervention. Um, and rather than sort of spreading stuff, maybe, maybe what we should be doing is saying, well, let's spread these concepts. Um, and actually do so in a way which allows people to amend them and test them and tailor them to their local setting and actually find out um, whether those interventions even work um, for a particular local setting. It's an approach like that, I think, is going to be much more useful and, and, and much more um, likely to bring about um, improvement, which I think um, would benefit the you know, patients and the, and the public at large. 
Um, so talk a little bit about um, why I'm going to ask John. John, uh, if uh, you can, maybe just uh, bring up one or two of Garrett's slides uh, that show this interesting um, effect of things um, over time and um, maybe actually effective, not effective. And then the next one, I think. Let's let's show that one. Whoop, next one after that. Sorry. <laughs> Whoops, where is that other one? Uh, the one that shows, oh, maybe that's, all right, go back to the first one. Sorry about that, folks. Go back to that one. So let's talk about um, what we're finding out about spread. I think we've made some assumptions uh, over time. Maybe we do have a good theory of change. And then we're not, we're, we're sort of stumbling around, it seems, uh, from what I've learned from you, with replicating and saying, well, let's take that, and now we're going to introduce it either in other settings or across the whole system. What's happening along the way that's causing problems? Um, I think there's one of the things is we're rushed. So if you look on that slide there, over on the um, left-hand side, where we, we talked about this kind of innovation um, sample. So oftentimes what can happen is you, you can, we can form an innovation, a new kind of um, intervention which is going to um, improve healthcare, but it's often only done in two or three or one or two places. Um, what can happen if we're not careful is we can just kind of go, oh, okay, this this looks great. We'll turn this into a fixed protocol. We think these, we think this is what's what the active component of an intervention is, and we'll just spread it. Um, and if you do that, what, what there's no there's no reason why that would actually work everywhere. Um, if you if you if you think about it, it's a bit like saying, um, you know. Um, there, there's no, there's no such thing as a kind of one-size-fits-all model, um, and that you do need to amend, you need need to adapt, and you do need to test and and, and learn about essentially what are the contexts, what what are the places in which inter this intervention may work or may not work. Um, so it's not just a case of saying does this intervention work, yes or no. It's more about trying to find ways in which we can learn where something like this is going to work and where it might actually need to be amended. Um, to work in. That's really the, the kind of approach we're thinking of. Uh, and, and I mean, we, we can actually, you know, we can take that theory piece another step um, for, further as well, because, you know, that's, that's, that's a theory of a particular intervention and why that might work. But then there's also the approach which IHI uses to help people, to teach people, if you like, about um, testing and improvement. Um, and I suppose one of the most famous uh, approaches we have is, is the collaborative. Um, and well, I think we need to be sort of thinking a little bit more carefully about how we describe that and, and, and what we think, if you like, what the, what the underlying theory is about why a collaborative um, is going to bring about the improvements which we think it is. Um, what, what are the, what's the way in which we would stage a collaborative? What it is, what it is if we were trying to teach people? Um, how will we know uh, those people have learned stuff? Um, and how will we know that they're beginning to, to actually make the changes? Um, and that has a measurement component um, which goes throughout it. It has a theory which goes throughout it. Um, and it has to have a way in which we can actually amend that and change that as we're actually trying to um, get, this, get this work done in a fairly real-time way. Um, an awful lot of improvement work is essentially about making predictions, um, not necessarily about making black and white definitive decisions. And, and predictions um, are there really, uh, you know, they're, they're something which you update um, in the light of data as we right. forward. And really, that's, that's I think is, is, is the approach we should be taking is about saying, well, how do we how do we alter our degree of belief, either you know, to increase our degree of belief in something or decrease our degree of belief in something, and then act on that and, and, and change what it is we then do and our, our approaches. Okay. Um, and I think which sits behind all of that is it's, 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 it's needing to understand the theory and the concepts which sit behind all of this, and that's often 
I think one of the problems is is that once we start talking about theory, um, people's eyes tend to glaze over. Right. Um, nobody has yet in here, but <laughs> I'm waiting for. Don't it. glaze over anyone. Yeah, yes, um, yeah. It gets complicated. People, you know, a lot of times people just want to know what what to do. What do I need to do to bring about improvement in my local setting? And there's a challenge, I think, for for improvement organisations to try and sort of back off and go, well, okay, think of it like this. Let's back off. And these are the components. These are the starting points. And you now need to test your way um, forward. Okay. So that's a that's a challenge. So I'm going to thank you, Gareth. Uh, don't glaze over, not at all. Um, I um, I'm sure you have a lot of questions, as many are occurring to me. So start thinking about them, because we'll get to questions in about 15 minutes. Um, um, I'm going to flip things around. I'm going to go to Dale and then Mary, because I'm mindful that Dale has to leave uh, at the half hour. So Dale Webb, um, you and I, I think at different times during the whole Safer Patients Initiative, we've been copied on each other's emails, um, and in some sense you, the Health Foundation, have learned some things recently, almost the hard way, about all the issues that go on with evaluation. So I'd love if, if you could share, because we all can agree, I think, that evaluation is critical, and independent evaluation is very, very critical. But there's really good ways to go about that and very problematic ways. So sh share what's been going on for you at the Health Foundation. I'd be happy to. And first, just to endorse yes. what Don was saying, I think this is an urgent question, not least because of the financial constraints on many healthcare systems internationally. We have to demonstrate what quality improvement can and what it can't deliver. And I think for me, the Take a Patients Initiative um, was a wake-up call because it told us that we have to be careful about the claims we are making for improvement interventions, not least the collaborative, as Gareth talked about. We have to recognize some of these challenges are long-term challenges that won't be easily sorted with a short-term program of work. But it also taught us that we have to really rethink the relationship between quality improvement practitioners and quality improvement researchers if we are going to take forward the evidence base. So in the Sick um, Patients Initiative, SPI, the, at the outset, our ambition was to transform systems of care in organizations over a two-year period using a quality improvement collaborative. In the, oh, throughout the whole UK or in England? Throughout the whole of the UK. Okay, uh-huh. And, um, Pay no attention to that echo. <laughs> we'll keep going. Go ahead. Yes. This was our aspiration. And because we thought we might see effects across a whole system of care, we commissioned an evaluation specifically to see whether you might see effects across that whole system of care. And when the evaluation report came into the Health Foundation, that report concluded that whilst SBI had been influential among senior stakeholders, it really hadn't um, percolated through to the sharp end of care to those people on the ward, they weren't really practicing SPI nearly as completely as we thought they might. And in fact, the, the difference between our SPI hospitals and our control hospitals was fairly minimal. And we racked our brain for some time and said, well, why is this the case? And we realized, and this echoes um, Gareth's earlier point about program theory, we realized that the aspiration we had for SPI did not translate well into the design and the delivery of the program. This was ultimately, in, in reality, a localized program. It didn't have a spread strategy. It wasn't operating at the level of dose that we could catalyze system-wide effects. So this was a real wake-up call for the Health Foundation. It made us realize that we had to rethink um, our, our programming work, not least because we had lots of hospitals, of course, collecting their own data for improvement, who had some really good results, but they were results in, in, in pilot areas rather than results across the system. Very, very good. So I guess my uh, question for you, Dale, because I'll ask uh, even a quick follow-up, again, mindful that um, 
that you'll be on your way. This question about who should be doing what and the various roles here, so people who are working on the improvement, the kind of research and the learning and the harvesting throughout, and then, of course, the independent evaluators. Obviously, there has to be a role for everyone and hopefully a collaborative one. Um, has the concern been that somehow, up till now, we would all be in all these groups would be in each other's way, and we haven't really understood sort of the appropriate function of each? I think it's been um, it's a good question. I think there's been an unwillingness sometimes sometimes to enter into the world of the other, and so um, so the the difference between the evaluation community and improvement community is often characterised by this data for improvement versus data for judgment distinction. I think it's an unhelpful distinction. It separates our communities and doesn't get you to really engage with the real world. What is it like to be designing an improvement program? What are the requirements to do that? How can we align the reality of an improvement program with an evaluation design so it's asking the right questions and collecting data in the right places? Unless we create real dialogue between these communities, then I think we will, we will move forward. And my sense is that really where there is a willingness among different parties to want to learn and enrich each other's experience from genuine dialogue, actually evaluation and quality improvement can work really, really well together. Okay. Are you optimistic that uh, from the Health Foundation's perspective and even with what you've been hearing since being at the conference here in Paris, that we're bound to start seeing um, maybe some better integrated processes here with evaluation of work? I am, actually. I, I think in general terms, people are more receptive to the whole notion of improvement science than maybe they were, say, even five years ago. And the fact that we have a symposium at this conference now dedicated to that is a real welcome development. So I think we have many of the theories and the tools that we need. And I do think the nature of the debate between academics and practitioners is, is changing very noticeably in recent years. So yes. Optimistic. Okay, thank you so much, Dale Webb. Mary Dixon Woods, let me um, bring you in here. I confess, I just started to read your fascinating article. Um, I don't know, John, if you were able to uh, make the slide about at least the abstract uh, from a year ago in the Millbank Quarterly, uh, where you did a really interesting study with some co-authors, including Peter Pronovost, about what, what uh, contributed, really, to the success of the effort to reduce um, central line infections in ICU. So uh, at the very least, we should um, chat in, uh, Vicki or John, the link to that article. But Mary, part of what you call this, I guess, an ex post uh, sort of evaluation, um, which was unfamiliar to me, but very, very interesting. What is so important about understanding the change mechanisms, which is part of what you were sort of dissecting almost? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's really to amplify what's already been said, that if we don't understand what the change mechanisms are, there's a real danger we end up replicating what are essentially pin imitations or tail imitations of the original, but you've lost the essence of it. And I can give it a simple example, which is that there's a real need for the blunt end of healthcare systems to talk to the sharp end. So we need managers to understand what it's like on the shop floor, and we also need something to happen vice versa. And one technique that can be used for this is called the, the walk-around. And this is where the manager is supposed to go onto the floor and figure out what it's really like uh, for the people caring for patients at the sharp end. Um, now, if you don't understand the mechanism of change there, which is that you need to be in dialogue and that needs to be a genuine exchange and genuine listening, then what we see when we do ethnographic work where we hang out on hospital wards and what happens is that these visits can turn into something like having a visit from the Queen. So the chief executive <laughs> arrives on the ward and all the patients are freshly scrubbed 
and everything is clean and sparkling and it's not a it's not it's it's, it's almost like a military inspection it's not like um it's not like a dialogue between the blunt end and the sharp end it's simply a display that this ward is doing well and that's not really about listening that's about um that's about in fact further reinforcing these divisions so we need to understand what something like a leadership walk around is there to do what its goal is and we need to understand not the rules uh, the rule could say something like, go on to the ward and spend half an hour there. That's not a good way to do this kind of design. Uh, what we need are principles. So we need to, uh, for example, you need to go on to the ward. You need to spend enough time there to understand what it's like to be there. You may even need to get into bed and wear pyjamas for a, a couple of hours and, and be the patient and wait to see how long it is before you're taken to the toilet if you need to go, that kind of thing. So understanding what the real mechanisms of change are is, is just critically important. And we worry that a lot of the time when uh, there has been a successful intervention, what happens is the rules, the kind of simple structures get exported, but not the real understanding of what's happened. And then you get this big problem of magical thinking. So people think, if I just do PDSA cycles, it's all going to be fine. And this is just a fetish. It's not uh, they're investing this thing with uh, magical properties, but it really doesn't work unless you understand what it is that lies behind a PDSA cycle that makes it work. Okay. I'm just curious, um, were there, or if there are maybe a couple of things that you learned from the analysis of the Keystone program in Michigan, uh, again, on the central line infections, that maybe not, uh, I don't know if it surprised you, but may have even surprised some of the team members who had been working in terms of their assumptions about why they got such good results. For sure, for sure. So um, the, the Michigan Keystone project was one of the most successful quality improvement programs ever. There are other examples, but this was this is one of the iconic ones, really. And uh, Peter Brunabost and Chris uh, Gosher, who ran the program in Michigan, were very keen to understand how they could ensure that the mechanisms of change were fully understood. And they were frustrated that so often it had been the story of the program had been sold as a, a checklist intervention, and they they knew it was not a, a checklist intervention. At the time, they had just a small budget to run the program, and they didn't have a concurrent um, ethnographic evaluation. Uh, so we worked with them to try post hoc, so after the thing had ended, to capture the learning that they had gained, to produce a theory of what happened. And then we thought that that was a theory that could be used next time, it could be tested out. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a study in the sense that we weren't able to do it at the time. Uh, so some of the things that surprised them were the, our emphasis on the strength of the community bonds that grew up and the, the, the emergence of a learning community. Um, are, we, we thought that things like having a trolley or a cart with all of the materials that you need to do a central line all together in one place was not just uh, an organizational uh, fix, but it also had some kind of symbolic significance that it signified to people, this is something we're taking seriously, uh, this is something that we're supporting you to do, we're making your life easier, not better, and that uh, it signaled in a way the commitment to, to safety. So there, there are some examples yeah. of things that were a little surprising. Okay, very, very interesting. Thank you. All right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to give uh, Dale um, his uh, parting words here, um, which is, <laughs> maybe I'll just ask you one more question. 
What would you say um, is the uh, best thing that happened from the Safe for Patients initiative in terms of the success that one hopes to build on at this point? Oh, I think I think what um, SPI achieved was wonderful in the sense that th this model clearly has traction with clinicians. They like the approach. They like data for improvement. They like visual data. They like making the case locally. We've seen SPI have an impact on the um, health policy landscape in the UK and all four of the UK countries, and we are seeing the model being used internationally. I think looking back on it, it probably was, was, was the wrong time to be asking the kind of evaluation that we did, but I wonder now, eight years on, whether we should be thinking, actually, eight years on, what are the long-term impacts of SPI on the policy landscape as well as the practice landscape? Okay. All right. Thank you, Dale. Um, yes, I'm going to... Provocation. Yes. All right. But should we let Dale go? Do you have time for Don Goldman's provocation? No, not for Dale. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dale Webb. Really appreciate your time. Okay, Dale Webb from the Health Foundation. All right. Here's Dr. Don Goldman. No, not finally, doctor. First of all, if you're a student in my class in, in, uh, in college, which I teach in the freshman seminar, our fall term. Uh, anybody calls me doctor, it's the only way they can fail. It's a pass-fail course. Oh, so God. All right. Don't fail me. All right. Because there are other doctors in the okay. room, and it's a seamless. So I chide you for that. Okay. I'm chided. Okay. Uh, but, but here's the provocation. So I'm sitting out there in the audience that uh, how many ever hundreds of lines are open, and uh, I'm an improver, and I'm thinking, holy mackerel, this evaluation stuff, this this uh, formative evaluation, understanding the theory and the context and all this. I, I, all I want to do is to try something. I want to do a little PDSA cycle where I'm going to find out if uh, um, moving the uh, toilet paper from the left to the right uh, would be better for patients with stroke to manage their, uh, their bathroom experience. And, and uh, how much do I really understand about that? So uh, can't we just get on with little tests of change and see what happens in it, then if we're going to do something more um, major where we're going to actually uh, think about the project of making the experience better for the stroke patient, then maybe some more theory and predictive modeling and so forth might be important. I'm reacting actually very obviously to what you said about PDSA cycles, and I just don't want to chill the enthusiasm for the front line to try things. Sure. Okay. Uh, good good uh, question. Good point. Mary? Okay, so there is a, it probably one of the things that would be really helpful at this point is to clarify what we mean by a program theory. So there's a wonderful paper from nearly 20 years ago now by Mark Lipsy called Small Theories of Treatment. And what we mean by a theory is something that outlines the causal pathway. And it doesn't have to be anything posh, it doesn't have to be anything that comes from the social science literature. It's simply an explanation that exposes why you think this thing is going to work. Uh, so if you're going to move the toilet from one place to another, then we need to have some kind of rationale for that. So we, we could even stop talking about theory and start talking about rationale. Why, why do you think this will work? So if I smack you now, will you stop talking? Is, uh, is something where we no. can have a... <laughs> 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 we, uh, we could have a theory about why that might work, or we could say, if I reward you now, uh, will you stop talking? Uh, that would be another way to do this. So we have some kind of theory about how the action will result in the outcome that we want. And it can be a very, very simple statement. It's simply a rationale. It's what we mean by a theory. So something like a PDSA cycle is perfect for small tests of theory. Uh, because here, you want to know why it is that making this change is going to result in the outcome you want. So at the same time as you're testing the thing, you should be trying to figure out why is it that this thing is working. 
Okay, thank you. Gareth, go ahead, and then after Gareth speaks, we'll open things up for your questions and comments. Yeah. There's another perspective here, which I've heard a lot from um, from, a, from from this kind of improvement science community, or of a science of improvement community, which says, um, you know, quality improvement isn't necessarily about trying to generate knowledge which is going to be applied everywhere. Um, a lot of what quality improvement does is to take a, an organization and work with that organization and that organization alone. So all, all we're supposed to be doing is trying to improve what's in front of you. So, there's one, so on the one hand, there's the sort of thing, okay, put the toilet roll wherever you want, um, as long as that works for you, I don't really care, fine. Um, this is another perspective which says, oh, okay, so that worked for Don. Now, how many other Dons do we need this to work for in order for us to know how to spread this to everybody? And there's a tension there, um, I think, between which, which what, what is it, you know, what's, what's the purpose of who, who needs to know this information? Is it just for Don um, or a few people in, in, in that particular part of the organization? Or is this something which we're now going to take and we're going to spread that everywhere? How do we go about doing that? And that's, that's, that's the kind of tension which I think we've got to, you know, think about here, is it? All right. Sounds good. Well, we've set the table with a lot of wonderful ideas. Um, and um, John, uh, Gothier back in Cambridge, Mass. And again, we're here in Paris. That's quite uh, terrific in a conference room at the Palais des Congrès. Um, let's go ahead, John, and remind people how to uh, post some questions and comments. Thanks, Madge. Uh, yeah, we're here in Cambridge. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, the chat is open on the right. It's been open to all participants, so please make sure that if you uh, have a question for Madge or one of the guests over in Paris, um, that you put it in the chat, that you address it to all participants, um, and don't put it in the Q&A section. It's hard for me to keep track of both of them. We did have a good question from uh, Lisa Height, who uh, said, for Gareth, how do you maintain a level of standardization for multiple entities within a program of policies, procedure, and metrics if the steps are taken, or if the steps taken are unique to the location or the site? Okay, nice, um, hefty question. Thank you, John, and thank you, Lisa. So we're really trying to talk about um, sort of standardization and things that are similar across uh, at the same time um, that there's got to be a lot of adaptation. So, Gareth, uh, if uh, Mary's nodding away, and if you want to still think about it, I'll jump to Mary. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Gareth is thinking, and Mary will comment. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, the Michigan program is a good example of where they combined standardization with local customization. So again, if we think about principles rather than rules, the principle was you have to have a checklist and it has to have these five things in it that we know work. After that, you can make whatever local adaptations you want. So the principle is clear, but you could put love and kisses from Madge at the bottom, you could put your own logo, uh, you could add extra things, but you, you, the principle was checklist with these five things. So I think there, there is something very important about, and again it comes back to being clear about what we're trying to achieve, about being clear about what's the hardcore and what's the soft periphery, and where can we make those changes that make it work locally because we know it works. Um, okay, Gareth? Yeah, I think from my perspective I'd, I'd talk about, and maybe it's similar to what Mary's saying, is you know, if you're going to standardize anything, maybe standardize the principles, don't standardize the details of those principles because that's not going to work out. So, go ahead, Don. Things go awry, I think, when uh, people uh, really want to standardize at all costs. Yes. And they want to be prescriptive at all costs. And there you merge, you, you uh, stray away from an adaptation to the local circumstance to brute force. And brute force can be extremely effective in organizations. In fact, I suspect 
that a lot of the improvement we see has very little to do with uh, PDSA cycles and the, the contextual adaptation, and has a lot to do with higher nurse to get to the site. And when you get, get into that kind of mentality, you don't uh, really uh, get a, a spirit of team collaboration that will be sustainable and spread to other things you want to do, and, and you can get results, but you don't get the sustainable or super spreadable results. Okay, thank you both very much. All right, what about, uh, here's a question from Sam Larson. Um, how can we leverage implementation science and translational research to address some of the ideas you've raised? Um, maybe somebody, just to be sure we're all on the same page, what are we talking about when we mean translational research? Um, and uh, where does that relate? Anybody? Pass <laughs> um, the potato. Yeah, gosh, well, this is interesting. I mean, there's lots of attempts going on in, in the world at the moment to try and define implementation science, trying to find translational research, and even trying to find improvement science. All of these things have an awful lot in common. Um, and yet, you know, and I think this is, this is the, whole, the whole idea of really trying to develop an integrated approach here. A lot of people, if we're not careful, we can end up in very, you know, distinct silos arguing over semantics. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really want to get into it, trying to define implementation science and translational science. I think really we need to be able to develop, as, as we've been talking about, a more integrated approach to what we're trying to do here. Um, okay. So whether there's a role for implementation science, probably, but we'll have to figure out what implementation science really is before we figure out what our role is. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm just looking. Oh, here comes some of the things down on my laptop as well, as well as uh, Gail Freeman is here, by the way, everyone from IHI as well. Um, Madeline is um, mentioning that I find in this time of significant cutbacks and increasing acuity of clients, both in hospital and in primary care, things are slipping doing, due to staffing capacity, both because providers are stressed and lack of time. Um, so what is what we're talking about right now have to do with um, other variables that may come into play? So in other words, some of the issue about uh, taking something that we think works in one setting and another setting or continuing to build on may now have a variable, something else that's going on around staffing. Mary? Sure. Um, well, again, I think this is where blunt and sharp end uh, differences are important. So when we do a lot of work with organizations, uh, what will happen is we go to the sharp end, and the sharp end is say all of our quality and safety problems are due to the fact that we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough doctors, and it takes ages to get the results back from the lab, and we don't have enough access to scanners. So they see all of the problems as structural problems. When we go to the front end of organizations, they say, you know, our big problem is we have really bad staff culture around here, and uh, they just don't have the right attitude towards the quality and safety, and they're careless, and so on. And somehow we have to figure out where are the boundaries of what the contribution of structural factors are, and what the contribution of culture and behavior is. There's almost certainly some interaction, but what we can't keep doing is saying it's a cultural problem or it's a structural problem. Uh, we need to figure out what is the minimum you need to do to deliver care safely, and this is where improvement science really has an important role. Okay. Yeah, this, Go ahead, John. This is one of the more generative uh, yeah. things around improvement, yeah. I, I feel. So we always hear with appropriate concern that staffing is an issue, but it may be that staffing has become more acutely an issue yeah. than it was when Michigan Keystone was done. So, but but if, if you really are into the framework of adapting to circumstances, and testing ideas, it's a, it's a plus. Uh, 
uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is to try and just slog ahead saying, well, we know this works, so make it happen, as opposed to saying, well, how can we now adapt it to a new reality of staffing? And some of the best practice, often using lean thinking, uh, which is another methodology that can be brought in uh, to the improvement world, uh, can improve and, and make more efficient uh, what uh, seems to be a pretty good intervention in a different context. So I see it as a plus when there's constraint. Here's a question from Randy Petto. Thanks, Don. Are the scientific journals ready to accept for publication intervention studies that standardize on principles, not details? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> what, what do you think? Are we, um, where are we? I guess what's the alignment here also in terms of what we're discussing? and then trying to get some of this work uh, published and according to the principles. We're going to follow some of this logic that's being discussed. Are we in good shape for publication? That's a really good question. I, I mean, we, we discussed this in the session earlier, that there are big problems with uh, publishing um, policy improvement studies. So these are local studies where people have tried out an idea and they now want, some, now want a way to tell the world about it. We don't have a good way of publishing those. And we also have challenges when we try to publish which are, what are actually big scientific studies of quality improvement because um, the journals, the big scientific journals, often don't see that they um, are making a big enough difference when it may be very important to discover that they haven't made a difference. And because they're sometimes seen as being specialty specific, so they say go away and publish that in a stroke journal or a cancer journal or whatever it is. Um, so I think we need to do some work with the journals and we need to, uh, again, engage principles about what kind of thing counts in science and what kind of thing is going to deliver benefits for patients. And I keep coming back to this, but we have to make the care of patients our first concern. And if I, th I think this science of health delivery, science of healthcare organization is one of the ways we can really make the difference now. We're not going to get another magic bullet therapy anytime soon, but what we do know makes a difference is organizing care well. Uh, so we, we need to think about how to, to, to make sure the publication models are aligned with us. Okay, very, very good. I'm looking, thank you very much, uh, Mary Dixon Woods. I'm, I'm sort of looking at some of the different questions here and trying to group some of these. Um, somebody's wondering whether or not all of this uh, that we're discussing in, sense of, in a sense um, means that we should be able to also have an impact on costs, that somehow if we're doing this um, with a much more robust both standardization but also a good sense of our theories of change, uh, that we should actually have the effect of um, having an impact on costs. Anyone want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I actually, uh, this plays out two ways, and uh, I'll just uh, rip off of some remarks that Mary made during the earlier panel that you referenced, Madge. Uh, first of all, if you're involved in improvement, quality improvement, you've got to be acutely aware of the unanticipated consequences that need to be monitored. In fact, I personally think it's unethical uh, not to be uh, mindful of what they are. I'll, I'll very often see a really great improvement idea in a project that comes off of it where nobody has explicitly done what we do in safety all the time. We say, what, are the, what is the failure mode and effects analysis here? What could happen that could be bad uh, that we better anticipate and monitor? And so that's really important. Cost is one of them. If you've got the greatest idea in the world, it's going to bankrupt Children's Hospital Boston. Uh, it's probably not uh, something that ought to be done without considering the cost uh, or the burden on the staff or the other things that could be uh, deleterious. The, the, the second part of it is that now in this current environment, uh, cost reduction is 
important, uh, that raises a different kind of ethical issue. So if you have a, quali a quality project that's going after costs, the unanticipated consequences, that may be harm to patients. Mm -hmm. So I would want to see a balanced measure set over a quality improvement project that said, yeah, we want to get more efficient and reduce costs, and by the way, we're going to look at the impact on the patient, we're going to look at the safety issue. And, and can't confuse that. And, and organizations that undertake these projects really need to develop a mechanism that's something other than an institutional review board or whatever country you're listening in from uh, has as its ethical oversight for research that knows how to evaluate quality improvement research in a way that uh, doesn't uh, harm the patient. Thank you. A couple, two questions. Um, Gareth, you want to say something? Oh, okay, two questions I'll kind of group together because I think they're related. Um, one is uh, one is asking, how do we motivate providers to be part of the measuring process and change? Um, we understand that everyone is stressed, but um, how can we help kind of the health community to get more in, engaged in this? And this maybe relates to the earlier question is, you know, who's on first and who's doing what uh, in the work. And somebody else is saying, isn't it time we made being engaged in improvement work and all of these things part of job descriptions um, wherever you are in the clinical process? That's, um, I think, a, a big order of change, but it seems relevant. Uh, Gareth, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing about engaging clinicians, I suppose, it, it comes down to this stuff again about, it's almost this stuff about being told what to do. Um, if you think about an awful lot of where evidence-based care comes along, it's almost this case that you, a physician is given some information and they're therefore supposed to do that because that's what evidence-based care is. But if they're sitting there going, I'm not sure that really applies to here, to me, to, my, to this patient in front of me. So I think and an awful lot of what I think things like the model for improvement and, 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 and generally the, the cold science of improvement does, it allows people to kind of go, well, wait, let's just see if this change, which this evidence thing over here tells me is effective over there. Let's, it gives people a method to actually go, let's see if this does work for us, actually. Um, let's actually then, because um, an awful lot of improvement is actually about changing people's beliefs in something. It's not just about giving people information. Um, so there needs to be a way, and I think the model for improvement does this, um, and if we can extend this, uh, the model for improvement into the kind of learning approach which, which, which could underpin a lot of evaluation, that will actually help people actually increase their degree of belief in something um, and actually then, therefore, actually, uh, you know, um, have that change more likely to happen um, appropriately or not, if actually, but if it doesn't work for those particular patients in front of them. So something like that might be useful. Thanks, Kareth. Mary? Uh, the issue of data collection is a really big one, and it goes back to something John has just said, which is about cost. If you set up really costly data collection systems, it's very tedious for staff, it's very distracting. And when we have done ethnographic studies of quality improvement projects, they work absolutely best when the form that you're using for data collection is the form that you're using for caring for the patient. So it's completely integrated and it's almost invisible that this is uh, something that you're using for two purposes. Um, it also actually improves the quality of what you're collecting because the, the form is part of the legal record and part of the, 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 the record of care for the patient. But it needs a lot of thought to see set it up. What, what drives people crazy is having to fill out extra forms uh, form four that, that may be collecting very similar information to another 
process for an audit. Uh, so it's, we have to think more carefully about what data should we be collecting anyway and how can we lever that and make it actionable so it's, it's helping people not getting in the way of their job. Yeah, it should really be a design constraint. And, and yeah. uh, what, what I'm finding is that if people really give that a lot of thought in advance, it'll make their work easier in the long run because they'll integrate data into their work in a way they haven't before. And so it's actually an issue with IHI's work. I mean, we are not particularly insistent that when we set up uh, collaborative projects that the teams and the work uh, integrate data into daily work in a way that's seamless so they don't have to mm. duplicate report. I mean, we use an extranet and they've got to go and enter it in some other way and, and it's, it's a problem. Thank you. Um, question from Paul. Where does an understanding of the prerequisites for the change come to play? For, you know, he's saying the understanding of the basics, base systems that must be in place before the change is spread. And I wonder if that gets to almost what's your theory uh, to begin with and how much, uh, you know, should people be thinking about um, before you even get started, you know, what, what is it that we understand about change in this environment um, or what might be needed? If I'm understanding Paul correctly, feel free to chat in further. Uh, anyone on that? Gareth? Yeah, I mean, I'm much more about to get to the context as well of, of, of an organization. I mean, I think one of the things we, we're learning about from all of the evaluation we've done as well is that some organizations are more likely to actually improve than others, depending on where they are to start with. Um, can, but, but we're not 100% clear of what those conditions actually are in terms of what, you know, we can't, we can get a good idea, we can get a sense of what, when an organization is more likely to improve than others, but I don't think we can necessarily kind of write down a thorough description of what so some of those kind of context type issues is issues which may not change necessarily during the course of an intervention, you know, like the, the setup, the leadership of an organization. Those are sort of context things. There might be other things which, which may be changeable. Um, and those are which are, which are to do with almost around the structure of the organization. But um, yeah, I, I, I think there's something around context which is going on there as well. Okay, thank you. Um, Mary, did you have a thought? There, yeah. There's also something about the nature of the problem you're trying to tackle, and this again is where the theory of what you're kind of trying to do is quite important. So we often distinguish between tame problems, which are the kind of problems that if you manage them well, you can sort them out, and wicked problems, which are the kind of problems that um, need leadership to sort out. So an example would be a project Gareth and I have both been involved in, which um, tried to improve outcomes of stroke care. And one of the things that the teams had to do was to make sure somebody uh, was weighed within 24 hours of being admitted with a stroke. Now, that's a tame problem because if you organize yourself well, it's actually quite a complicated problem because it means uh, if somebody can't stand, you have to have a hoist, you have to have a scale that can handle somebody on a hoist. If they can stand, you have to have scales that will uh, support them and so on. So it's a complicated problem, but it can be solved if you organize it really well and you, you manage it. And we found that the um, units were able to do things really, really well if you gave them ownership of the problem and they could sort it out. So again, it was the principle, make sure you weigh somebody, you figure out how to do it locally, we'll help you, but, but you can do it. A much, much more complicated problem was making sure that people had access to a CT scanner within 24 hours. That's a wicked problem because you've got one CT scanner for a hospital, a huge amount of demand for it. Uh, you need staff who are not on the stroke unit, and you've got to coordinate all kinds of things to make sure this is going to happen. So that's, that's, that needs the leadership to sort out. It can't be done locally. So distinguishing the characteristics of what you're trying to do and then the, the context things are really important. 
Thank you. Um, thanks for all your comments and questions. And I'm, uh, believe it or not, I'm multitasking with my eyes and ears and <laughs> trying to listen and, and, and watch uh, what you folks are saying in chat as well. Peter Brown is asking, should we be measuring the culture of an organization before uh, beginning an improvement effort? Do we need some sort of an assessment almost of um, sort of what's really needed uh, to bring things about? I know there have been sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think we should be measuring it because when we can find out what sort of culture is likely to bring lead to improvement or not. That would be a good yeah. way to do it. Um, but actually, it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think from the literature, it's not clear what sort of culture is most likely to bring about improvement. I mean, if that goes to the nature of Mary was saying, it depends on what the, what the problem is. That's one issue. Right. Um, but I, I've got a sense, I, I, I believe actually that, you know, it's important to understand your culture is, is one thing. But you know, well, one of the things I think we need to do is, you know, if you understand your culture, you've got a better sense of what actually might need to happen to, to bring about change. But I'm not sure there's, there's, there's strong evidence to say particular prescri prescribed type of culture is always going to be necessary. To yeah. well, Mary, I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you'd comment on this in a specific sense, because in the United States, for whatever reason, CUSP, which is a particular way of looking at the communication teamwork, I guess, mainly, but other factors as well, has become a, a, almost a requirement for research at the federal level on improvement. So the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality now in all of its requests for proposals requires that you use some modification or some part of, the, of this cusp. And I know that was important, and I think it was important in Keystone. Could you, could you comment on that? Because Gareth has kind of said that, well, maybe we don't really know what kind of what we need to look at. Mm. Um, so that's a good question. CUS stands for Comprehensive Unit-Based Safety Program. And what was interesting there was that they weren't using culture surveys in order to assess readiness. They were using the culture surveys in order to provoke a conversation. So if you discover that um, half of your nurses say they would be afraid to speak up if they feel there was a problem uh, happening, then that's something that provokes a, a conversation. Doesn't it? You start to realize, oh, I didn't realize that's the way nurses felt around here. It's probably not, to a social scientist, that, it, that kind of measure is not, um, because you can't measure culture, culture is due to norms right. and values and so on. It's, it's a signal of something, we're not completely sure what it is, but I think if you understand it as a, a way of starting conversations. Other aspects of the cusp are all things you would expect to be part of good practice, like daily goal setting. I think uh, I, I'm worried when I hear it's now being mandated, because to me this sounds like the fetishization problem, yeah. but if you don't exactly understand the, the problem we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> uh, if you don't understand what the mechanisms are and you're saying, here's a list of rules, you have to do this, 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 and you don't understand the principles, that this is about provoking conversation, this is about sharing and teamwork, this yeah. is about how we work together. But if you say, well, you just have to do these things, that just sounds to me like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I think, Madge, what we're here, what we're saying is that the improvement work that we yeah. all do runs the enormous hazard of, of uh, embedding, making a fetish or uh, making uh, statements that are beyond what we should be making about a specific methodology or approach, and then we really do run a risk that it's not going to work quite the way it was meant to. So what I can't believe is that um, I know the folks at Car Talk at WBUR, they always say, I can't believe you've wasted another hour with us again, but <laughs> that's not how I feel at all. 
I can't believe how fast this uh, uh, went today because I think it's fascinating. And uh, the folks you have here uh, have been at this kind of all week long, and this is in many ways uh, their, their careers looking at this. So given that I know we're not going to get to all the questions, um, I often promise towards the end of the WIHI that we'll look at the chat and we'll see if we can group some things together and get you some additional reflections from our guests today. But I guess maybe in some, uh, maybe one of you could just uh, offer some thoughts, given that you here you were uh, talking about it at the Scientific Symposium on WIHI, a panel just before here. How might people who are engaged in this issue and looking for more discussion uh, and resources, what are, are there any thoughts about some things that they might track or where they might look for, um, I don't know whether it's in the literature or sort of ongoing discussions that are happening? If there's no obvious answer, we'll work on finding one. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious, uh, is there a way to sort of stay engaged in this, um, given that we are trying to raise a level of awareness? Any thoughts, even general ones right now? All right, it was a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> there are journals that do quality and safety stuff, uh, and I think they're taking an, an increasing interest in evaluation. So uh, the International Journal on uh, Quality, the BMJ Quality and Safety, and so on. Uh, I, I think there is a need for a forum where we debate these things in more detail. Um, we need some kind of place where we talk about evaluation um, and talk about how we move forward the science of this. Yeah, yeah Gareth? Um, I, I mean, if nothing else, read Mary's paper about explaining Michigan. Right. I think that, that really helps explain program theory in a, in a very clear way. Actually. Okay. Well, I started to read. It's very good. I did put in uh, the link to that. You can find it on the Millbank Quarterly, and uh, it was uh, from 2011, and I'll just tick off the title, Explaining Michigan, Developing an Ex-Post Theory of a Quality Improvement Program by Mary Dixon Woods and several other authors, including <laughs> Peter Front of us. <laughs> okay. And, and, and I'll, I'll add something to this. Yeah. I mean, Gareth knows that I always say this, but if yeah. you're planning a project which you hope to present at a meeting like this, or you hope to publish, or you hope to go forth and say this is pretty good, uh, try writing an abstract, mm -hmm. a structured abstract, because it'll tell you, it'll force you to say, what is my aim quantitatively or qualitative, but be very specific? What is my hypothesis or theory? Uh, what are the methods I'm using in very brief terms, and and then you know what 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 will table one, which is just basically the data, look like, and what will my results look like? Maybe sketch out blank tables and graphs, and then what are what conclusions am I hoping for? Is it uh, Kirkpatrick level one, two, three, or four? Are we going to have a good experience? We're going to learn something. We're going to change behavior. We're going to get uh, outcomes change. And then what are the limitations of my work? If you can write in a couple hundred words, those things, you're on your way to doing what Gareth and Mary said you should do. Well, I think this is a really, really uh, fascinating and very germane issue. It sort of goes to the heart of what everyone is doing really globally, and I suspect you got a lot of interest in the panel that you had even just before here. So I suspect we'll be hearing more about this. I want to thank uh, everyone. Uh, first of my panelists, uh, Dale Webb had to uh, duck out, uh, Gareth Perry, Mary Dixon Woods, and Don Goldman. Um, and uh, 
uh, we will take a look at the chat and see if we can maybe answer a few more questions. Uh, this chat uh, and any of the slides we shared, if you were on the computer with us today, you can collect all of it. You'll be prompted when you log off. If you're not sure how to go about all that or you're only joining us by phone, you can email info at IHI.org and get all the same materials. Look on IHI.org tomorrow where, where this program will be archived, the audio plus all the related uh, resources. Um, and I do hope we can return to it. I'm, I'm fascinated and um, I think many of you are as well. Next up on WIHI on May 3rd in this same uh, spring season here, Pursuing the Triple Aim, Seven Innovators Show the Way to Better Care, Better Health, and Lower Costs. That sounds like a great title for a book. And in fact, it is a book party discussion on May 3rd, an hour and a half uh, with the co-authors Maureen Bisignano and Charles Kenny and a cast of thousands who contributed to this book in terms of their ideas and work. Uh, that uh, information goes on the website as we speak, and you can enroll as soon as you'd like. Um, please, again, uh, check out all the resources on IHI.org. And I also want to uh, extend my sincere thanks again to the BMJ group, uh, Yael Gill, uh, the people who make WIHI possible no matter what continent we're on, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt War Morris, excuse me, and Rachel Yates, our Northeastern Co-op. Um, so I say merci, merci. We won't go on from there. Uh, to everyone, for this, it's been a real thrill to come to an international forum. And I hope on WIHI, we, whether I get to travel to Paris or not, we can, or London or any other country, I think there's 70 countries represented here at this forum at least. I hope we can do more on WIHI uh, that uh, connects these issues from a global perspective. So thank you, everybody. Uh, see you again in two weeks on WIHI and look for all the resources. Au revoir.